We started this new series on Philippians last week, and if you remember, Paul opens his letter by telling the church how grateful he is to the Lord for them, for their faithfulness to to him and to the Lord, uh, as well as how much joy that the church brings him. Um, And and there's lots of reasons why Paul is full of joy. He's full of joy because of the grace of God. Um, He, as well as the church, understand uh, and have experienced grace in their own lives, uh, that the only reason why they even belong to Jesus is due to God's grace. Um, he's full of joy because of the fellowship that he has with the Philippians, that they, are, uh, that they love one another, that they support one another, and that they are on mission together. Um, he is full of joy because of the unity he has within the church, uh, just the deep understanding that they have that they are one in Christ, which means a diverse group of people can come together and worship the Lord together uh, without division. Um, And he has great joy because of the work of of sanctification, and we talked about that last week as well, that God has promised to complete the work that he has begun in each one of us, that he will finish everything that he starts, which means that there is coming a day where each and every one of us will be like Jesus, and that should bring us great joy and great hope. Um, And now Paul turns his attention to praying for the church, And, and the prayer that he offers here, it's a simple yet profound prayer. It is a prayer that all of us can use, uh, and more importantly, it is a prayer that God will answer because it's a prayer that is aligned with His will for us. This is what God wants for each one of you. And so with that in mind, let us stand for the reading of God's Word, and I'll be reading Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Let us pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We know that your word is living and active. We know that... Uh, This is your very word to us, and Lord, we pray that your spirit would move in our hearts and our minds, that we would not simply understand the words on this page, but that uh, we would understand them within our own hearts, and that we would be transformed through the renewing of our minds. We pray that you would help us um, be able to apply what we hear here, that we'd be encouraged as we are reminded of the deep, deep love that Jesus has for us, and may that inspire and equip us to love one another in the same way. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> I thought of this at the end of last service, and I wish I had thought of it this week, of, of starting off the sermon with a, a clip from Princess Bride where he says, love, true love, is what brings us here together. Because that's what we're going to be talking about. This is a prayer of Paul, and it's a prayer for love. And as we said earlier last week, you know, Paul has a deep affection for his church, Uh, And he begins his letter by reminding them uh, how he feels about them. And he views them as brothers and sisters. He views them as as being part of a a family. And this is how we should view one another as well. That in Christ we are all part of the family of God. That we are all part of the bride of Christ. We are all part of the body of Christ. And and this has great implications for Paul. It has great implications for us. Tony Moretta says this, Family meant something to Paul. And it should mean something to us. It means that we are a band of brothers and sisters on mission, on our knees for one another. What holds gospel partnerships together is not locations or affinity, but loving intercession. So so in other words, prayer is the fuel for healthy families. 
Prayer is the fuel for a healthy church. And there are lots of reasons for that. First, prayer humbles us. It enables us to acknowledge the fact that we are utterly dependent upon Him. It puts us on equal footing with one another. That we need Jesus to help us in our relationships with one another. That we need Jesus to help us to love one another well. Second, it also reorients the way that we view others. So so prayer enables us to consider others from the perspective of God. To think about others not as how we see them, but how God sees them. And not only that, but to, to consider what is it that God desires for them. Not what we desire for them, or what even they desire for themselves, but what does God desire for them. So prayer helps reorient us in how we view others and how we view uh, what's happening in others' lives. And Paul understood this. This is why his letter to the various churches always include prayers for the church. Um, And those prayers are are usually simple, um, but they are powerful. Because he doesn't pray in a general way, but he prays in very specific God-honoring ways. And and we can learn a lot uh, from studying the prayers of Paul. If you've never taken an opportunity to, to do a study and to meditate upon his various prayers, I encourage you to do that. And a, a great resource for that is uh, D.A. Carson has a book called Praying with Paul. He also has a, a video series that goes along with it. And it it's, it's well worth your time if you've never done that. It'll change the way you view and, and how you pray. But we see here in Philippians that Paul loves the church. He loves the saints in Philippi. So, so naturally, he wants to pray for them. And naturally, he does pray for them. He opens his letter by encouraging and commending them. Um, because the Philippians, they, they are a very healthy church. They're known for how well they love one another. They're known for how well they love and care for Paul. Um, they're also known for their commitment to the gospel. Um, they, they, they love proclaiming Christ and seeing that message spread. So how does Paul pray for them? Well, we see that in verse 9. He says, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. In some ways, that should beg the question, like, why? Why is he praying this for them? Because he just commended them for being a loving church. They're known for this. They're known for their love for one another. So why is Paul praying for them to grow in love? It's not something that we would necessarily expect. We might actually expect Paul to pray that, he, that God would remove various obstacles from them so that they could be more effective in proclaiming the gospel. Or maybe he, we expect him to pray that God would provide for them you know, the resources necessarily in order for them to, um, to more accomplish the goal that God has put before them. But that is not what he does. You know, they are a church who is loving each other well, and yet that is the basis of Paul's prayer, that the church would grow in love. I think there's much that we can learn from this. First, as we saw last week back in verse 6, God will finish everything He starts. He will complete His good and perfect work in each one of us. And the implications of this is that we're not done growing. There's still work to be done in each and every one of us. We have not fully arrived, spiritually speaking. God is continuing to conform us more and more into the image of His Son. And I know this comes as a surprise, but there is no one in this room that is Jesus. We all have room to grow. We all have ways that we need to change. And so one of the reasons that God has redeemed us is so that others might see Jesus in and through us. That they might see a more clear picture of Jesus as we continue to grow in sanctification. J. 
James Boyce says something about this. He says, God has not saved us merely that we might be free from judgment and go to heaven when we die, but that the character of Jesus Christ might be reproduced in us while here on earth. And Jesus is the supreme example of love. If we are being conformed more and more into his image, it makes sense that we would epitomize love in our relationships with one another. And since the love of Jesus is inexhaustible, we will always be able to abound more and more in love. And as we grow in love, and as we grow in the ways that we love one another, we will act and look more and more like Jesus. So yes, the church at Philippi is marked by love, but they will never be loving enough. And this is true for us. We will never be loving enough. We cannot exhaust the love of Christ. Paul writes elsewhere in 1 Thessalonians, this is in chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, he says this, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. So the church in Thessalonica is another church that's marked by, by love. They're known for loving the brothers and sisters in Macedonia well. And yet Paul exhorts them to still grow in love. And that is my exhortation for us this morning too. It's simple. Grow in love. Grow in how you love God and grow in how you love one another. Because as you do that, as you grow in love for God, as you grow in love for one another, you will reflect Jesus more clearly. Secondly, love is vitally important for the health of believers and for the health and effectiveness of the church. Love is not optional. Jesus tells us in John 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So Jesus himself commands us to love one another. And it's not a suggestion. It is a command. He exhorts us. He exhorts you to love one another. Why? Well, he gives us two reasons. First, we love one another because Jesus has first loved us. We can love each other because Jesus loves us. And we're going to talk more about that in a minute. But second, we love others. We love one another because that is a mark of true discipleship. The love that Jesus lavishes on us should compel us and empower us to love one another. Ligon Duncan says this, Love is a hallmark of the true knowledge of God, of the experience of His grace, of the experience of His love. If you've really known, if you've really known God's radical, life-transforming love, you will manifest something of that love in your life, in your relationship with others. True love is never Static. That means that true love can never be exhausted and it will never stop growing. It also means that true love is designed to be passed along. If God pours his love into you, it is expected that it will flow out of us and we will pour it out to others. This is how God has designed it. And this is why Jesus says that his disciples will be known by how they love one another. If you truly know and follow Jesus, you will love other people. If you've experienced his love, you will be changed by that love. And one of the ways that you'll be changed is, is in how you view and how you relate to other people. So another way to think about this is think, about you, think of yourself as a conduit of the love of Christ. 
So Jesus doesn't just deposit his love into you and expect you to hoard all his love for yourself. No. His love changes us. And it changes how we relate to other people because his love flows through us to one another. That is why Jesus offers warnings about not loving one another. Because if you truly know and love Jesus, if you've experienced his love, you will love others. And so Paul prays for the church to abound more and more in love. But what does that look like? What does that love actually look like? Well, look at verse 9 again. It says, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Now, we often hear the statement that love is blind. And there's a lot of truth to that, right? There's a lot of truth to the fact that love is blind, which means that love is not based upon things that might typically cause divisions. So love is not determined by race or status or even shared affinities. Not only that, but true love also overlooks offenses. It, It transcends differences and divisions. But there's also a sense in which love is not blind. Because true love is not ignorant. That is why Paul commands us to love with knowledge and discernment. Love requires vision and direction. And the word used here for knowledge is a unique word. It refers to spiritual knowledge or knowledge of the things of God. So Paul is telling us that true love is informed and directed by God himself. He puts knowledge and love side by side. That they go hand in hand. That you cannot love somebody apart from the knowledge of God. You can't have love without knowledge, and you can't have knowledge without love. And this is very countercultural because our culture wants us to separate the two. Our, our culture says that love and knowledge are not to go hand in hand. Our culture says that love is really based upon tolerance or that it is a subjective thing, that it's based upon how one feels. And therefore, love for one person may not be love for somebody else. Or the way someone defines love is going to be different from how somebody else defines love because it's subjective. And so therefore, telling somebody, for example, that they are wrong if you do it in a loving way or if you hurt somebody's feelings is always considered unloving to our culture. But the Bible doesn't allow that. You cannot separate love and truth. More than that, God is the one who defines what love is. God is the one who informs us and directs us on how we are to love one another. And God is both the God of love and he is the God of truth. You can't have one without the other. And therefore, we are to abound more and more in love with knowledge. So what exactly does that look like? Well, when Paul uses that term knowledge, he's not simply talking about head knowledge. He's not saying that we just need to know a bunch of facts about each other so that we can love each other. That's certainly part of it. But he's talking about a relational knowledge. We need to know God deeply, and we need to know other people, the people we are seeking to love deeply. Stephen Lawson reminds us that genuine love never operates in a fog. It is always based upon knowledge and understanding. So in in order to love others well, we need a deep understanding of people's lives, and we need to know what they need and why they need it and how we can actually minister to them and how we can bless them. And that cannot happen truly apart from God because God created all of us. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows what you need. He knows the desires of your heart. 
He knows what will truly bless you, even if you don't know that. The hard truth is that we don't always know how we, are, how we need to be loved, much less how we should love other people. But God does. God knows how to love you, and He knows how you are to love other people. And therefore, rightly exercising love needs to be informed by Him. It needs to be informed by the Word of God. God reveals Himself through this Word to us, and He reveals to us what is expected of us and what He desires for us. So our love for others needs to be directed by the Word of God. Rightly exercising love also requires God-given insight into people and their situations. And this should drive us to our knees in prayer. We need to constantly go before God, helping us see our own weaknesses, our own faults, humbling ourselves before Him, and also praying for other people that we might best know how to serve them and how to love them. So Paul commands us to love with a God-giving, God-honoring knowledge. But he also says that you need to have discernment. One way to understand the difference here is knowledge really tells us what is right, and discernment tells us what is best. Because we not only want to love people rightly, but we want to love people in the absolute best way. And that requires God-given discernment. Discernment enables us to see clearly into a person's life. It enables us, enables us to see a situation realistically. And that requires time and sacrifice. But isn't that what love is? Love is unconditional and it is sacrificial. So, so what does this look like just practically? What does this look like day in and day out in, in our just living our lives each day? Well, it means that we take the time to prayerfully listen to and to get to know a person truly to get to know what their longings and needs are, to get to know their situation, and then to take that before God in prayer and to study what the Scriptures have to say about that particular situation and how we can minister to a person, how we can love a person in that situation. You see, oftentimes we are more concerned about offering a, a quick answer or a quick solution to a person's problem without actually spending the time to truly hear them and to know what they truly need, to know where they're struggling. So this also means at times it means sacrificing your own time or your comforts or your resources in order to love somebody well. Sometimes it means you may have to confront somebody with the truth, but to do so with humility and to do so in a loving way. Because you see, love is not telling people what they want to hear. Love is not affirming people in their sin. Love is proclaiming the truth and pointing them to Jesus. So think about it this way. If you saw somebody that you love walking towards a cliff and you know that if they were to fall over that cliff, they would surely die, you have a choice, don't you? You could either tell them about the cliff or you can just hope that they would discover it for themselves and turn course. But you also know that if you tell them about the cliff, you're basically going to be telling them that they're headed in a wrong direction and that they are heading for destruction. And they may not want to hear that. They may not like you for pointing that out. So what do you do? Now, I know this is not a perfect example, but often in the pursuit of love, we say and do nothing. Because even though we know that the course somebody on is leading to destruction, and that is not love. 
Jesus was the most loving person on the face of this planet. And what was his primary message? To repent and to turn to him, to follow him. He's basically saying, you are heading for destruction. Turn to me and rest in me and I will give you life and I will give it to you abundantly. Because Jesus knows exactly what we need. Him. We need Him. So loving one another with knowledge and discernment, it will manifest itself in all sorts of ways. It may simply mean just taking the time to sit with somebody and to listen to them and to pray with them. It may mean providing somebody with something they need to care for them in just a practical way. Uh, It may mean watching somebody's kids because there's a couple that's tired and weary and can never get a night out on their own. It may mean serving in a ministry that you don't particularly like because you know there's a need and you know that that ministry will bless many people. It may mean pointing out somebody's sin and exhorting them to confess and repent and turn to Jesus. But it also may mean allowing somebody to speak into your life and to point out your sin. And to respond with humility and gratitude and not with judgment or retaliation. Truly loving one another with knowledge and discernment may mean that you have to confront somebody over an addiction, even though they may not respond well to that. It may mean calling the authorities on somebody that you found out is abusing their spouse or their kids in some way. Loving one another with knowledge and discernment can be hard. Matter of fact, there are times it may be the hardest thing God calls you to do. But he calls us to love one another because he loves us. And he doesn't want us to stay where we are. He wants us to become more and more like his son. And one of the ways he does that is by bringing us into relationships with one another. Enabling us to love one another and to be loved by one another. And he uses that to conform us more to the image of Christ. So he calls us and he equips us to love one another as one of the ways he accomplishes sanctification in our lives. And true love never fails. It will bear fruit. And Paul shows us some of the fruit that love will bear in verses 10 and 11. He goes on and he says, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness. So true love will lead us to approve what is, what is excellent. It will help us to be pure and blameless. It will produce in us the fruit of righteousness. So if we seek to love people with knowledge and discernment, that means that we are seeking to love people in the best possible way. And that's not always easy. Stephen Lawson says this, As Christians, often the most difficult challenge we face is not in distinguishing between good and evil. Rather, the most challenging choices are often in deciding between what is good, better, and best and how to love people. There are lots of ways that we can seek to love one another. And many of those ways are good, but are they always the best way? You see, Jesus loved each one of us in the best way. His love is always right. His love is always excellent, and we should seek to love one another in the same way. And that is why knowledge and discernment are so important, because we don't simply need to know what is right and wrong. We want to know what is excellent, what is best as we pursue to love others. 
So Paul prays that we would be able to approve what is excellent and how we love one another. And as we seek to love one another in excellence, that will change us. That is why Paul goes on and says that another fruit of love is the fact that it equips us to be pure and blameless. And the word here for pure is an interesting word. It actually means uh, without wax when exposed to the sun. So that's helpful. <laughs> but what, what that is, it's an imagery. That it's an image that is, is known in that day. There's a particular type of pottery that was very expensive, and it was sort of this prized piece that you could have in your home, and it was often sold in the marketplace. But from time to time, those pieces would get a crack in them. And if they had a crack in them, they would be pretty much worthless. So there were dishonest dealers at the time that would take this special type of wax, and they would fill in the cracks with that wax. And once it hardened and they would paint over it, you could not tell that there was any flaws or cracks in the pottery unless you held it up to the light of the sun. And if you held it up to the light of the sun, it would expose the wax and the crack, revealing the, 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 the true worth of the object, that it was defective. And that is what Paul means here. Paul is using this term to say that our love for one another, it must be the real thing. There must not be any cracks in it. It must not be hiding any kind of defects. In other words, that we are called to love one another with integrity and without hypocrisy. As I mentioned earlier, as Christians, we are a conduit of the love of Christ. But if you are hypocritical in the ways that you love others, that will stop the flow of love in and through us. If you're hypocritical, your love for one another will not be genuine. It will not reflect the love of Christ. We are called to live our lives in a way that is open and honest. How we live should be the same whether it's in public or in private. How we live our lives should be the same on Sunday morning as it is throughout the week. It should be the same in the presence of God and in the presence of others. That is why Paul says that we are also to be blameless. Purity deals with our inward character. Blameless deals with our our outward behavior. And he's saying that our outward behavior must meet or must match or reflect our inward character. And this is especially true in how we love God and how we love one another. Our love should be sincere. And we are called to do this until the day of Christ Jesus. And this is a reference to when Jesus is going to return. And there are two implications here. The first implication is it begs the question, which is, are you ready for the return of Jesus? When Jesus returns, will he be able to look at you and say, well done and faithful servant in the ways that you love other people? Because that's only possible by trusting in him. We can only be pure and blameless by resting in Christ, for he makes us pure. He takes away all of our sin, and he gives us his righteousness so that we, right now, actually stand before God as pure and blameless and as righteous as those where there is no condemnation because we are in Christ Jesus. And that is good news. The second implication is that the call to love one another with knowledge and discernment, it has no end date. There's not a statue of limitations on how long you are to love somebody. As long as you live, you are called to love others with knowledge and discernment. It also means that you are called to love another person or others, no matter how challenging it may become. We are to love people to the utter end. And although that can be difficult at times, it will bring you great joy. Because as we love others, we are experiencing the love of Christ in us and through us. And as Paul goes on to say, we will be filled with the fruit of righteousness. Now, Paul is not teaching here that we are made righteous in how we love other people. 
Because we are made righteous simply through Christ alone. At the moment, moment we believe, you've been set apart and you've been made righteous. What Paul is talking about here is that true love leads to right relationships. When we love one another in a Christ-honoring, Christ-empowered way, our standing with each other gets better and better. It gets stronger and stronger. It gets deeper and deeper. Where there will be less fear, there will be less anxiety, there will be less shame, there will be less distrust in, in how we relate to one another, and there will be more joy and there will be more peace and more trust in our relationships. It will enable us to be more vulnerable and real with one another. Last week we were reminded that we are all part of a fellowship, which means that we need each other, that we've been given this glorious mission that we cannot do on our own strength. We cannot do alone. We need one another, and therefore we need to love one another well. We need relationships that are pure and honest and blameless and righteous. Why? What is the purpose? Why should we love one another in this way? Well, for one, it will bring us much joy. It will bring you joy if you love people well. And as important as that is, that is not the primary reason, though, that we should love one another. The purpose of loving one another is to bring God glory and to enable us to praise Him. We see that at the end here in verse 11. He says, may, you love, may your love abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And that is always the chief end to everything we're called to do, to everything we do, is to praise God and to bring Him glory. Now, we often lose sight of that, but there is no higher purpose in life. That is our ultimate calling. In this case, we are called to love one another to praise God and to bring Him glory. And the more that we understand this, the more that we keep our focus on that, that as we seek to love others, that our focus is on to bring God glory and to praise Him, that actually changes how we view one another and how we love one another. It enables us to love one another with knowledge and discernment. So we see in this passage that Paul provides us with a beautiful and powerful prayer that is easy for us, something that we should implement and something that we should model. He prayed this for the church at Philippi and and. And since Scripture's inspired, he also prays this for us here at Tabernacle. And we should pray this way too. And, and as, as we leave here in a few minutes, that's my encouragement and my challenge to you, is to incorporate this prayer into your prayer life as you seek to pray for yourself and as you seek to pray for one another. Let us pray that our love would abound, that our knowledge would grow, that our discernment would increase that we would choose not what is good, but what is excellent, that we would live in sincerity and integrity, that we would live in fruitful righteousness, and that we would ultimately live for the glory of God in all things. Because this is a prayer that God will answer. How do I know that? How will He accomplish this in us? And that brings us back to verse 11 as we see that He will do all of this through Jesus Christ, and that is the key. We cannot love one another in this way apart from Him. But in Christ, we can love one another because Jesus first loved us. We can love one another in this way because Jesus' love compels us to love one another in this way. We can love one another because Jesus empowers us and equips us to love in this way. 
Because as I said earlier, it's, it's His love flowing in and through us to others. And we can love this way because Jesus gave us the best example of what this love looks like. You see, Jesus' love knows no bounds. He has perfect knowledge and discernment to love us perfectly every time and in every way. His love is always excellent. He is pure and blameless, and His love is pure and blameless. His love is always right, and it will produce the fruit of righteousness in our lives. And Jesus did all things to bring glory to His Father. So Jesus loves you, and He loves you to the uttermost. And He is interceding for you. And I can't help but think this is one of the ways He is interceding for you right now. This is one of the ways that your great high priest is praying for you right now. So we can have great joy knowing that Jesus loves you and that He is praying that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and discernment for Him and for each other. Let us pray. Lord, I do thank You. We thank You for Jesus who loves us more than we deserve, who loves us more than we even realize who lavishes love upon us, not that we could keep it for ourselves, so that we can turn and love others in the same way. Lord, we confess there are many times that we don't desire to do this. There are many times that we fail to do this. There are many times that we don't want to love other people. We pray that you would lead us to repentance over those times, that you would enable us to experience and embrace the love of Christ in and through us, that we would love others well, that we would love them with wisdom and knowledge and discernment, ultimately that we would love others for your glory and for your praise. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand. We are actually going to pray this prayer together for us using this corporate prayer that's found in your bulletin. So let us pray this together. Lord, we pray that your love may abound in us more and more. Fill us with knowledge and all discernment, that we may approve what is excellent. Make us pure and blameless for the day of Christ, and fill us with the fruit of righteousness that comes only through Jesus Christ. This we pray to the glory and praise of God alone.